0: Psalm forty-two, Psalm forty. You were close. We this this needs to go down a little bit, please. I was sharing in our class yesterday morning that uh, sometimes when we come to the scripture, sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we will eventually know. That one's off. Are these ones off? Yep, they're off. We're not going to be able to get this one. I'll just use this one here. There we go. We'll eventually get this figured out. Listen to the words of Psalm 42. Part of what Psalm 42 says, I believe, is very applicable to our message this morning. My soul thirsts for God, in verse 2, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. And then he says, and he repeats this, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, this morning, as we look at your word once again, going to the Beatitudes, the first message that has been recorded for us in the Gospels that was given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I ask that the things that I have studied and prepared for that you would help me to bring Clarity to this passage of Scripture, and that we would be able to go from here this morning, not being just hearers of the word, but doers as well. I pray that as we look at this text, even though it is just a brief text, there is so much here that is found throughout the Scriptures in regards to mourning and being comforted. I pray that we would go from here being a blessed one today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. I invite you to stand if you're able to do so. And we are going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And Sterling, if you could do something for me on my desk as you're facing computer. On the table right there to the left are a couple of papers that are highlighted. You could bring those to me, please. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it is my prayer that you and I will be able to go from here this morning, knowing that we have been comforted by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit who dwells within the life of every true believer. Thank you. You may be seated. I am sure that in a congregation of this size, I'm sure that there are Several of you, if not all of you, who have mourned at some point or another, you don't have to raise your hand, but you know what it means to mourn. It could be mourning over the loss of a pet. It could be mourning the loss of a friend, or it could be mourning the loss of a loved one or a job or whatever it may be. I mean, I I can remember one time I was in high school and I got an F on an algebra test. I'm surprised I didn't get an F on every algebra test. And I mourned, I was unhappy that I had gotten that F. Mourning is actually the expression of an experience that is the consequence of an event in life involving some kind of loss that causes grief. This can occur as the result of someone's death, specifically someone who was loved. Although loss from death, thank you, is not exclusively the cause of all experience, or is not exclusively from death, is not exclusively the cause of all experience of grief. In our culture, tears and grief can be frowned upon, can't they? We find tears to be inconvenient, and often, sometimes, we can be misunderstood we might or others might be concerned as far as what upsets us. I can remember growing up when we were in a school one time and there are times when maybe I would get upset or I'd be picked on on the school bus or, or out on the playground. I was always the smallest out of all the kids in the class except for one little girl in fifth grade and her name was actually Cherry. And I remember her name simply because I was actually taller than her. It was a happy day when I joined fifth grade. But I can, don't laugh, Gabe, but I can remember being upset and I can remember some of the boys picking on me and saying things like, oh, you're not crying again, are you you're going like this right here? You see, tears can be seen as a sign of weakness, a loss of emotional control. After all, real men don't cry. Yet listen to what one commentator notes. Grief is an emotion that is common to the human experience that we witness through the biblical narrative. Many Bible characters experienced deep loss and sadness, including Job, Naomi, Hannah, David. And we read in John chapter 11 as one example that even Jesus mourned. Jesus had grief. End quote. Have you ever experienced grief so deep that your body hurts? Have you ever wept until you felt like there were no more tears left? Maybe your grief was so overwhelming that you didn't know what to do or how to handle that grief. There, there are, are multiple books that have been written on how to actually handle grief. Everything from little pamphlets or tracts to, to, to entire books that have been written. And I don't believe that they're all wrong, but everybody writes about grief are those who have written write from their own perspective. You see, this morning, you need to understand that my grief can never be your grief and your grief can never be mine, because how you actually handle that grief in your life is going to be different, even if our situations were the same. If I were to lose my spouse or I was to lose a child today, it's not going to be the same response that you have towards losing a spouse or a child in your life. Every one of us handle those things differently. And and, and a large part of how we handle that though, actually is based on the kind of theology that we have. You see, Paul makes it very clear in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that we are not to sorrow as those who have no hope. For those of us who are true believers, when, when grief deals or when grief comes to our life and, and it's in regards to the loss of a loved one, we can have hope that we will see not just them again, if they're a true believer, but that we will see the Lord Jesus Christ who one day, as Revelation chapter 21 reminds us, he will remove all tears from our eyes. What a glorious day that will be. But how do you handle your grief? What do you do with that grief? King David knew the pain of grief when he wrote in Psalm 56, verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Brother Scott, you want to have somebody help you there, brother? Speaking in this second beatitude, the people of Galilee would have understood the connection of what Jesus meant when he speaks of grief, when he speaks of mourning, and when he speaks of what it means to be comforted. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find multiple words that that give account for hundreds of uses when speaking of mourning, weeping, lamenting, grief, or crying. Often weeping or lamenting paints the picture of a person who is has torn their clothes and who sits in sackcloth and ashes. For example, we see this in the book of Job. Job, if you do not know the account, uh, Job is a man who would have been living about the time of the patriarchs. And, and we find that, that God has allowed Satan to be able to test Job as it were. And as he goes through life, Job comes to a day he's been giving a sacrifice every day just in case his children have sinned. He offers a sacrifice for them as well. And in one fell swoop, God allows Satan to take everything from him of any value. He loses all of his livestock. He loses his camel, his sheep, his goats, his cows. And then in one party, one time a party, partying, Job loses all 10 of his children at one time. We think it would be bad for us to lose one child. And yet Job loses 10 all at once. And then Satan, of course, goes back and he stands before God and, and he tells God, he says, well, if you would but touch his life, He would curse you and God says, okay, go touch him, but you can't take his life. You can do whatever you want to with him. And he puts severe boils on him. In fact, the next picture that we find is Job actually has a broken piece of pottery and he is scraping his skin, trying to break open the boils so that the pus would be removed from the skin. And yet we are told that through all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth. Wow, what a testimony to know that he has come through an incredible time of grieving. Now, now I don't know if you have ever read the account, but but I just want to say that I think that Mrs. Job is, is kind of given a short end of the stick. Because ladies, I want to ask you something. I don't believe for one moment that, that, that Mrs. Job is trying to get Job to curse God so that she will lose a husband as well. I think that she is seeing through eyes maybe of compassion towards him. And she knows that if he were to curse God, that God would probably just take his life and it would end the misery that he is struggling in. There are three main Hebrew words that give the verbal pictures that we find, and the words actually mean one, an inner attitude of mourning or lamenting. Secondly, it means to wail or to beat the breast. Maybe you have seen this particularly in the Middle East. It's it's quite common today, and, and uh, the, the the women actually make a sound in their throat, and it's and it's kind of a, a kind of an undulating sound, and it's actually called ululating. And it is a sign of, exter- of a great emotion or grief that they use. And, of course, many of them actually beat their chests out of the- what they're trying to do is they're trying to actually feel some kind of not just emotion, but feelings within their body that says, I sympathize with whoever it is that is actually mourning. The third word means to cut out or to rend. In the New Testament, we find that the words mean, and we'll look at these a little bit more here later in the message, mean to bewail, to lament, to mourn, or to grieve. Fast forward to the end of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter, or in Luke chapter 19, we'll look at Matthew later. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 42, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is not just standing up on a hillside overlooking Jerusalem and shedding a tear or two. This picture that we hear or that we see in this word that is here, Jesus is actually wailing over the spiritual nature or the loss that is found within the city of Jerusalem. It's a similar sympathy that we find in the, in the book of Romans, for example, when Paul says, I would that I could go to hell myself if every one of my brethren could go to heaven to be with God, if they could be forgiven. Wow, that's pretty strong. Have you ever considered how much you actually love missions? How much you love what God loves? Would you be willing to say like the apostle Paul, Lord, if you you could send me to hell, if you could just save all of my family, if you could just save all of my town, all of my neighborhood, Paul says, no, I would be willing to go to hell if God would bring salvation and redemption to every single Jew. He weeps over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And in this sense, Jesus is greatly sorrowful because of the spiritual condition of the people. He mourns for them. In biblical times, mourning was actually a business for for those who who did not feel that they had cried or wailed enough over death or great calamity. And if you had the means to pay for it, you could actually hire professional mourners to handle the grief on your behalf. often the more mourners that you hired, it would symbolize a greater degree of grief or sorrow or would tell the others around how great a status the dead person actually had in life. By the way, we are now 2,000 years from biblical times and do you know that there are actually professional mourners still in the world today? And this is not just in the Middle East. (laughs) I brought some things to read to you because some of you may have a hard time believing this. Most of us dread going to a funeral no matter who has died. However, some people actually make their living by attending these events, and they are professional mourners, and the word that describes them is actually a moirologist or a sobber, a wailer, a crier. In fact, in South Africa today, you can pay someone to cry and they'll even threaten to jump into the grave if you're so inclined. But of course, they charge more for that service. The practice of having paid mourners is actually begun or is believed to have begun in China and in the Middle East, but it was also found in ancient Egypt and in Rome. Today, you can still find professional mourners. For example, in England, there is a service called Rent a Mourner. As one might, of course, it would be in England. As one might expect, these mourners are more reserved, well-dressed, and they are polite. In the United States, we actually have paid mourners as well. One particular group at the Golden Gate Funeral Home in Fort Worth, Texas, These people are trained and paid for their services. And interestingly enough, for those of you who are military, there is a group of ladies at Arlington National Cemetery who are professional mourners called the Arlington Ladies. While they are quick to say they are not professional mourners and take offense if you call them that, the reality is, this author says, they actually are professional mourners. And the program actually began in the late 1940s as a way of ensuring that no service member who is buried at Arlington National Cemetery would be buried alone. The ladies volunteer just one day a month, and they might attend six or seven funerals in a day. To join the group, a woman must be nominated by a current member, and every military branch has its own ladies attached to it. In fact, as of 2021, there are approximately 64 members just attached to the Army branch. Today, mourners are used for some of the same reasons that they were 2,000 years ago, to be able to show grief. Listen to this example coming from the scripture in Amos chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, to all, or in all the squares, there shall be wailing and in all the streets, they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing, those who are skilled in lamentations. Even in the Bible times, this would have been about 650 to 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Farmers were not working throughout the entire year in the land of Israel. And so these farmers, according to Amos, are actually taking up laments. And you could pay these, who, these people who are sometimes farmers during the year. The rest of the year, they're lamenters or mourners or wailers. So the children of Israel who are standing there on that hillside outside of or on the Mount Chorazin, just outside of the village of Chorazin, they would have understood what it meant to mourn. They would have understood what Jesus is saying to begin with when he says in verse four, blessed are those who mourn. In light of what Jesus is addressing in his sermon, we take note of what he means in this verse, and I want you to take comfort in how this applies to a blessed life for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Together, let us look at the second beatitude. Now, I, I want to I warn you right from the beginning that, that there are things maybe in this message that you may not like. You see, because the mourning that Jesus is speaking here is not just about mourning over somebody that you lose in your family or losing of a pet. This is much, much deeper than that because he is dealing with the kingdom of heaven. And the first point on your notes there is Jesus is speaking about mourning for our sins. What does it actually mean to mourn? Yes, we've given a bit of a brief description but there are actually 23 different Hebrew words and five Greek words to define what it means to mourn. In fact, there's an additional three Hebrew words and three Greek words that refer to weeping. First Corinthians chapter five and verse two. And you are arrogant, Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's the same word that Jesus is using in Matthew chapter five. The context is over the matter of sin. One commentator noted this. It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from an empty professor. Did you catch that? It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. Remember, this this is not a a litany by the Lord Jesus Christ on on how you or others can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This has nothing to do with that. This This is a guidebook. This is a path to walk for the believer. Many have spoken to me down through the years of ministry to ask what repentance and confession looks like. And I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand this morning because comp- or, or, or repentance and confession doesn't necessarily look the same in your life as what it does in mine. You may come to a point where God convicts you of a particular sin in your life and you just fall on the floor and just sob like a baby. But it could be that maybe you beat your chest. Maybe it is that you just have a, a complete overwhelming sense that you have violated the holiness of God and God brings you to conviction. And, and maybe you're, such a, you're the kind of person that you've never shed a tear in your life. So I don't want you to misunderstand that when we are talking about mourning or, or weeping or, or grieving over our sin, we're, we're not talking about these, these physical tears that come out of our eyes. We're talking about what changes in your heart and mind. So I want to be careful that I don't emphasize an area of, of sanctification that is not found in Scripture. I, I want to, I want you to understand that, that this pattern of mourning over sin, though, is seen throughout Scripture because it's not just David that writes in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. We find Nehemiah, for example, in chapter 1. And in Nehemiah, he's the king's cupbearer. He's got a great life. And, And here we find Nehemiah, and he's praying not just for himself, but he's also praying for his father's house, and he's praying for all of the children of Israel, especially those who are in exile. And he prays and he says, Forgive us our sins. In fact, King Solomon, after having just sacrificed and prepared the temple and there are some 10,000 plus animals that have been slaughtered, there would have been blood absolutely everywhere. And Moses, or Solomon prays to God and he says, Lord, hear our prayers, forgive your people. And God says, if my people, you may recognize the verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. If my people who are called by my name, this is God responding back to Solomon. And he says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. This word turn here is the word for repentance. It's the same word that we find in the New Testament or a similar word. The word is metanoia. It means that we are walking one direction. We are walking towards the world. In fact, we are doing more than walking. We are running pell-mell. We are running on the path that leads to destruction. My friend this morning, please understand me. You don't have to look for that path. You are born on that path. And at some point, the Holy Spirit comes. You hear the ministry of the word. You hear the good news of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and convinces you that apart from Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. Not because Pastor Mark says that's where you're going, but because that's what the Bible says. And you recognize that and the Holy Spirit takes you and he makes you a new creation and he turns you around and he points you to the Lord Jesus Christ and you see him hanging on the cross for your sin. And you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is repentance. It means a 180 degree turn, a complete turning away from what we were to what we now are. Again, not everybody will shed tears. Not, not everybody will wail. Not, not everybody will, will beat their chests in a sense of humility and piety. But this does not mean that we do not mourn. I want you to consider something this morning for those of you who are believers. The sovereign God of all creation laid aside his glory. He came to a sin-cursed sin-blackened world. He could have chosen to leave us wallowing in the muck of our blackened heart. And yet, out of love, he came to pay a penalty for his bride, chosen for him by the Father. It was a penalty that could never be paid for by you, yet in in taking your sin upon himself, Jesus Christ now turns around and he clothes you with his garments of righteousness. To be justified is, is not just as maybe some of you have heard in the past, just as if I'd never sinned. No, no, no. It's much, much more than that. It's actually legal. It's an accounting term. And it means that when Jesus Christ paid for your sin, when God looks down, he sees that the account which you owed is now zeroed out. It has been paid in full. This is justification. It's not something that you can do yourself. You see, if if and we have used these numbers before, but if you were to sin just one time a day throughout your entire life and every sin that you commit and, and you do just one a day, over the course of a year, you would have sinned about 365 t- times in one year. But if you go and you multiply that out, out over approximately 70 years of age, you would find that you would have committed approximately 25,500 sins. Somebody has to pay for those. There has to be an accounting from somebody. And either you can seek to do that. I can remember there are times people have said, well, I would rather go to hell because I'm going to have a party down there. You're not going to have time to party in hell. And there will be no party if you did have time. When the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, he who was the perfect sacrifice, he came to bring peace, not wrath, because he had to be able to take care of the wrath that the Father rightly was going to give to you and I. You see, salvation isn't, isn't just a matter of, of, of you and I praying a little prayer or, or saying something at the end of a track or or maybe repeating after a Sunday school teacher or, or a, 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 a young person's teacher, uh, maybe as their, uh, what is it called, children's church. No, it is more than that. It is coming to an understanding that apart from Jesus, I am damned to hell. I am condemned. You are condemned. So here's the question if you're a believer this morning. Why do we enjoy remaining in our iniquities, in our sin, in our wickedness, for which Christ had to suffer the separation from the Father and bear our hell? You see, this is this is the real question that you and I need to be asking ourselves each and every day. Every time we respond in an unfavorable manner to a spouse, to, to a child, to a grandchild, to a work colleague, to, to somebody that we don't even know, instead of remembering that the Lord says, there are two commands that I want you to follow. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we find ways, we look for ways to be able to get upset at others. In the world. Oh, my friends, we should rejoice that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should be mourning over any sin that detracts us from His holiness and from His loveliness you have a question this morning as to to whether you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you the key number one test that you can actually take right now today to determine whether you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't like it, especially if you're you're not sure, if you do not know 100% certain that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you, if you miss everything else in this sermon, I want you to hear this. First John, chapter one, beginning at verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we are walking in the darkness, in other words, while we are still abiding in sin day by day, hour after hour, nothing ever changes. We love our sin more than we love God. The Bible says that we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Brother Jeff, I am glad it doesn't say from one sin or from a handful of sins. It cleanses us from all sins. This is the reason why we can come to the table of the Lord and we can partake of communion, we who are true believers because he has forgiven us. If there was even one sin in your life that was not forgiven, you and I would come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen. This isn't isn't about saying, oh, yeah, well, well, I might have sinned. Well, maybe I told a little white lie. No, this is agreeing with God about what God sees in your life and mine. This isn't about trying to categorize whatever is in our life and saying, oh, it's just a little white light. Oh, it'll it'll pass. It's and, and this is why, and we're going to look at this, Lord, willing, at some point here in the near future. But this is why it is so important if somebody comes up to you and they say, I believe that I have offended you. Please forgive me. Do you know what one of the most unbiblical things is that you can say? It's all right it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You know why I say it's unbiblical? Because Jesus Christ had to die for that offense. Therefore, it can't be all right. You see, when somebody comes and they seek Forgiveness from you for something that they have done. Admit it. Admit that God has forgiven you and respond to them in such a favorable way that you can say, as Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. But in like manner, there may be times when you cause an offense, when you create some kind of barrier between you and another individual. And essentially what you're doing is you're creating a barrier between you and God. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin, you go up to that individual and you ask them for their forgiveness. Say, please forgive me. I have offended Christ and I have also offended you. Would you please forgive me? But if you're the kind of person this morning that, that you want to minimize that, you want to minimize that sin, the Bible is speaking to you directly in First John chapter 1. What you are saying is that you have no sin. You have no wickedness. You have no iniquity in your heart. And the Bible says that you are not a true believer if that's the status of your heart this morning. Do you love your sin more than you love God and his plan of holy living? Do you mourn when you struggle with maybe a particular besetting sin in your life? Maybe you have a sin in your life and it seeks to swallow you alive. It's like quicksand in which you are caught and you feel like you are just being swallowed by it and it's going to fill up and it's going to encase your body and then it's going to swallow you and your head's going to go down underneath and you're not going to be able to breathe. If it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, The fact that you and I deserve to be damned to the fires of hell. We need to understand what that sin did to the Savior. We need to understand that we need to mourn for that sin, not because we are concerned that we might not get on the glory train to heaven. We need to be concerned for that sin because it has broken the fellowship with a God who loved you enough to pay for that sin. Listen to what Calvin wrote. He said, quote, so far, truly as those things which had been polluted in Adam are repaired by the grace of Christ, the pious feel more deeply that God is good and enjoy the sweetness of his paternal indulgence. I want to stop just right here in the middle of this quote. I don't normally do this, but Psalm 150. By the way, if you think that this is easy to do, you can join us up here next Sunday, Okay. (laughs) Psalm 150. Do you know what verse 6 says? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. All right, all of the young people, I want you to look up here because sometimes us older folks, us adults, we just don't get it sometimes, all right? Sometimes we're a little bit slower. So I want you young people to help me out this morning. You ready? Okay, watch carefully. What is that called? I'm sorry, was that a young person? (laughs) One of the young people, what is that called? Breathing. And the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise ye the Lord. You know what the word actually means? It means to lift up holy hands, to be thankful to God for his goodness and his grace. Believers, you and I should wake up every morning shouting and singing from the top of our lungs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you have breath this morning, you are called, you are not just called, but you are commanded to praise God. Calvin continues, but because even in the best, the flesh is to be subdued. It is not infrequently that it happens that the pious themselves are worn down with hard labors and with hunger. There is therefore nothing better for us than that we being admonished of the miseries of this present life should weep over our sins and to seek that relief from the grace of Christ, which may not only assuage the bitterness of grief, but it will mingle its own sweetness with it. Praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah. Annie, you remember that little song that maybe you sang in junior church or in Sunday school? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Uh, you know, some of you aren't praising this morning. <laughs> Let's try this again. Hallelujah, hallelu, hallelu, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Hallelujah, 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 praise ye the Lord. That should be your cry and mine. When we understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is what Jesus is promising to you. He is promising the comfort of his Holy Spirit. We will be with you at all times. He will comfort you in your mourning when you recognize what it is that he has done for you. Listen to Joel chapter two, beginning at verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. The writer of of, of Joel here is saying, don't worry about the external. It doesn't matter if you rip your garments like they do in the Middle East, if there's no true mourning in your heart. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. Oh, my friends, this morning, every one of us has struggled with something. There is something that you and I have mourned over, but you want to see revival? We talked about this yesterday. Do you want to see true reformation in your life and in mine? And at Yellowstone Baptist Church, learn to see your sin as God does. You see, the purpose of, of seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this isn't so that we get more numbers at Yellowstone Baptist Church and, and we fill up every seat and, and then we have to have a second, a, a second service in on a Sunday morning. Or maybe we have to consider building another building out there so that there's enough people. No, the purpose of sharing this is because it is good news. Some of you have cancer now. Some of you have had cancer. And if I could come in and I could give you a pill and I could say this pill will cure every cancer in the world, you are still going to die and face God. Even if you die without cancer. If I could fix all of the medical problems in all of the world, the Bible is very clear that as it is appointed unto man wants to die and after this, the judgment. You say, well, I have never wept over my sin. I can't say that I have ever shed a tear. What is more important to you Is your will, is your way, is your desire to to be able to fulfill whatever lust it is that is in your heart or or whatever pride of life that you may have. And and everything ultimately comes from pride. We heard about it this morning in in the book of James, that the trials and the, the things that we struggle with in this life, the temptation comes when we are drawn away by our own lusts. Lust is not just about sexual sins. It is about anything that you have or I have in my life that exalts itself above the holiness of God. Listen again to the first part of Joel chapter two. God is declaring, yet even now, he's writing to the people who are in exile. Do you not understand as he is speaking to the people of Israel He's saying, do you not understand people? Listen to what God is saying. Return to me with all your heart. He has taken them, just a brief synopsis of a history. He has taken them out of Israel or out of Egypt. He has taken them across to the promised land. For 40 years, they wondered because they didn't have anything that they could do to be able to get into the land. Eventually, under Moses, they get into the land of Israel. And as soon as they get into the land of Israel, what do they do? Complain. There's giants in the land. The Bible says that they actually followed the Lord their God until the end of the days of Joshua god has to raise up judges on a regular basis some of them some of them reigned or ruled for for 20 to 40 60 years and at the end of that as soon as it was done they looked out and they saw what the canaanites and the amorites and the jebusites and the mosquito bites and they realized what all of them had and you know what they did they turned around and they ran after them you and i aren't any different you know, what we, we have a men's meeting on, on Thursday night and, and the ladies have a meeting as well on, on Monday night. And you know what they're doing? They're going through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Woman because my wife and the other ladies who are helping teach, they understand the struggles that you have in your life. We have the the passages that we look at from Hebrews. And the reason that we go through those passages is because we understand, I understand that it's not going to be enough for you to come on a Sunday morning, take off the God box and think that you're done for 166 and a half hours a week. It's not gonna be enough to change you. And it's not a matter of you coming here every single time the doors are open, but that would be great. The point is that you understand God so much that you can't help but want to be around other believers. That you love his church, that you love his people, that you love him, that you love his word, that you love what he loves and that you hate what he hates. return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Oh, my friends this morning, if only we would return to God that way. If only we would return to him with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, with with being willing to, to get down on our faces before him and say, God, you mean more to me than anything that is in the world or that the world can offer. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus Christ makes it very clear later on. And he says that we're not supposed to lay up treasures here. Our treasures are supposed to be in heaven. I want to conclude with this illustration this morning. And yes, we haven't gotten very far. I didn't think that we would today. Lord willing, we'll finish this section on verse 4 next Sunday. But this week, I've been listening to a couple of messages this last week. Today's a new week, and I've been listening to the stories and the lives of some of the martyrs for Jesus Christ, and you know what? It's been humbling. I, I complain if I get a stubbed toe. I complain if things don't go my way. I, I complain if I hit 15 of the 16 lights down Del Range, just like you do. And here's what I had to realize afresh and anew this week. If those things are more important to me, if my life is ruined that much by a red light or by stubbing my toe, what in the world am I going to do when persecution and trials come to this country? How am I going to handle it? How, how am I going to be able to stand up and look you folks in the face? and, and Or or if I'm in prison and, and I'm there for my faith and, and we find we can't meet anymore, or we're having to meet out in caves or in the rocks or, or find a, 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 a group of trees somewhere and to be able to meet and to be able to worship God. What is it going to say to you if the things that the world offers is more important than the eternal life that God offers me and you? You see, I've had to come to the point where I understand what it means to mourn. But I also know, as we will look at, Lord willing, next week, I also know what it means to be comforted. And it's a comfort that you can't ever offer me. And it's a comfort I can't offer you. You see, the the, the, the reality is this. if If I'm struggling and I lose a loved one or I lose a family member, or you've lost a loved one or a family member, and I come to the hospital, or I come to the hospice unit, or I come to the funeral home, and I'm there with you, and I can put my arm around you, and I can comfort you. I can't comfort you like Jesus Christ can. I'm simply an under shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And as Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I want you to understand this morning. I want you to hear one more thing. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I know for a fact, according to his word, that he can be your shepherd too. And if your faith is not found in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 36, that the wrath of God still abides upon you. I don't care what your position is. I don't care whether you've taught. I don't care whether you've preached. I don't care whether you've sung in the choir. I don't care if you've been a Sunday school teacher. I don't play, care if you've played the guitar. I don't care what you've done in your walk in a church throughout all of your life. If your faith is not in Jesus Christ, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Know today before you leave because the Bible assures us 100 percent that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that jesus christ is lord and savior you want to be comforted in all of your afflictions and all the struggles again go back and read psalm 42 and at the end of every one of those verses you don't have to turn over there but i want you to listen to this as a deer psalm 42 as a deer pants for flowing streams so pants my soul for you O god Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for doing that for me. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know when you're going to return, but thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you did for me. Verse 11, why are you cast down on oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for again I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are our hope, that you are our salvation, that you are our rock and our refuge. A very present help in time of trouble. You want to be comforted in your life? And look to the great comforter. Look to the one who makes it possible for you and I to be with him one day. All of this one day is all going to go away. We're not going to have to worry about anything. No sin, no tears, no crying, no sighing, no nothing. My wife and I were talking about that this week. Do you know on average, I think they say that the average person sighs 12 times per day. 12 times. So if you get up in the morning and... And your spouse says, are you sighing? Yeah, I've still got 11 more to go. (laughs) Because whatever you're struggling with, Jesus knows your infirmities and he is there. Amen. Be comforted today, you who mourn, for you are truly a blessed one. Father, Father, Certainly this has not been an easy message to bring. I'll admit that when I started working on this one verse alone, I wondered what I could say or whether there would be other verses maybe that we combine to be able to get through one message. Oh, Father, there is so much here. There are so many words that are found about mourning, lamenting, weeping, but we are to mourn over our sin and help us, Father, to mourn. To help us realize how dangerous life is without that mourning. To realize that the sins, the iniquities, the wickedness that we take for granted are the same sins and wickedness and iniquity that required the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross. Father, help us to see our sin as you do so that we may be comforted in our life. Yes, it's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.